West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky interests and also a love for the Lord our God. My name is James, and with me, as always, are my brothers Mike and Brian. Brian, how are you today, good sir? Things are going great. How are you? I am doing awesome. Mike, how about you, my man? Uh, well, given that I have a three-day weekend uh, ahead of me, so I actually have something like a day off this week, and that's amazing. So, Amen. At my job, uh, we got an email earlier in the week saying, can anybody work on Saturday? We're trying to have Monday off. <laughs> I don't think you get how this holiday thing works, guys. Wow. Yeah. For us, even if we did get it off, we wouldn't get it off because we would have the kids at home. And right. we don't get it off, but they do. So that means that <laughs> Good. we get to split our time. One of us gets to stay home half the day, and then we switch out. See, it's gotten interesting here because it's the beginning of what uh, in Massachusetts we call winter break. And the kids have all of next week off. And wow. it sounds Yeah, it sounds really gratuitous, but what it is is that they've taken the the averages from so many years back and determined that statistically this is usually the coldest week of the winter. And so what they do is they just get all the schools off, they turn down the heat real low so they don't have to pay so much more to heat the schools and save millions of dollars. And I'm like, that's brilliant. Massachusetts is one of those states that the weather is like, yes, you've had one winter, but what about second winter? <laughs> the winter break is just when winter takes a break for a little bit. Yes. And then it comes back. <laughs> yeah, that's called mid-March. <laughs> Take the break and then slams you. Yeah, afternoon icing, blizzard, supper, evening freeze. What about those? <laughs> Wintry mix or a weather condition that we have out here called raw. There will be times where you turn oh. on the weather, they say, it is just raw today. And what that, that means is it's probably 35 and raining. Oh, that just sounds uncomfortable. Oh, try cycling in it, and it's amazing. No, no, no I'm, I'm good. I'm. That's an experience <laughs> in my life I don't need. I'm going to live vicariously through that with you. I will ride my bike in 8-degree wind chill, and I will still take that over 35 and raining. <laughs> Well, let's move on to happier subjects than Mike Freezing himself, and uh, let's head to Geek Out. And Mike, you want to start us off? Sure thing. Uh, one of the things that is kind of passing on my geeky interest, or I don't know, forcing my geeky interest on the children, is after we finish <laughs> up The Princess Bride, uh, the kids still wanted, wanted to do evening reading. And I'm like, okay, cool. I, I'm more than happy to do this. And so... I just said, let's let's see how this goes. And we cracked open Fellowship of the Ring. And I have been loving it to death. And my eldest has been absolutely loving it. And my youngest is like, no, reading is cool, but when are we going to get to the action-y bits? We've had a lot of walking so far. So, we got yeah, about she's... 250 pages left, and then there's a fight. <laughs> just one. Uh, yeah. Well, what's weird is she absolutely loved the, the sections with Tom Bombadil. And reading that aloud to my kids, there was a lot in there that I did not remember. 
especially the parts about the hobbits running and sunning naked upon the grass. That that I think <laughs> has to have been updated since I closed the book last. <laughs> no, it was always in there. It, yeah. Now, do you? But sing Brian never. Um, the Tom Bombadil bits I did. I I kind of caught the rhythm of that. So, and that was just goofy enough that I did Tom Bombadil singing. But for a lot of it, I. I just can't quite get the rhythm just right. <laughs> yeah. But some of it I do. So, yeah, it's it's actually been really been great having to take this slow enough that I could actually really dissect the book as I'm reading it aloud. Like, you can't mentally skip over any parts because you really have to, to be paying attention to what's going on. And, and I've Paul been is marvelous read. read aloud, too. Yeah. His language is just wonderful. It is just a joy to read. It really is. Except for all of the elvish names, because I'm not practiced <laughs> up enough. I have kind of practiced ahead of time the language of Mordor that Gandalf says at, at the Council of the Ring, just so I don't stumble all over that. But most of it, it's one of those things that I, I feel like I'm tripping over the elvish names and mixing it with the names of antidepressants. So <laughs> I, I posted that meme. It, it could be worse. I mean, you're having to try to figure out elvish names, the, the rhyme and the music of the songs in The Fellowship of the Rings. You could be having to try to sing perfectly the songs from the 1977 Hobbit to your kids. Roto of the Nine Fingers <laughs> and the Ring of Doom. Down, down to <laughs> Goblin Town. Where there's a whip, there's a way. <laughs> Wait, was that I from Hobbit not... or was that from Return of the King? That was from Return of the King. Okay, yeah. I think both of those were actually. Yes, I think you're right. Down, down to Goblin Town was from The Hobbit. I just remember that yeah. one. I think there was one about a fat spider and more. One about roads, but yeah, I mean, the road goes ever, ever on. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. Well, it, I see that the two of you are a lot more familiar with that than I am. <laughs> when I was a kid, it was probably my very first exposure to Tolkien, and not so much seeing it on TV, the cartoon, but seeing a commercial for the VHS on TV, and I was like, "Huh, that looks weird." Yeah, I saw those many, many times as a kid. Your comment about antidepressants actually reminded me. I took an audio production course the first time I went to college, and we had to do a commercial for something or other. And so I did an, a medicine commercial, and the, the drug was called Gandalfipin denethothorin. <laughs> Hopefully somebody in the class got it. You know, I don't know that anybody did. <laughs> oh, that's sad. Of course, you, you didn't have any context to it when you're just getting it as a commercial. And so we're, we're talking about Tolkien right now, so it's really easy to identify all those names. But without that context, I think maybe it might have been a little bit more difficult to recognize them. Four out of five wizards approve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are so many times at work where I'll drop one of these references, and the registrar, who is a wonderful, dear soul, will look at me and let me know that I just dropped references in without any sort of context. And so, <laughs> I mean, I may as well have turned to her like, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. <laughs> but uh, also in my geek life recently, I had another book pushed into my hands by my dear friend, Sydney. And I've mentioned her on the podcast before that anytime she's pushed a book into my hands, she is not wrong, like 
ever. And she gave me Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. And this has been a fantastic journey through a fantasy world that is gloriously woven together by something that usually just grates my nerves to no end. And that is taking either allusions to or characters from fairy tales and merging them into some sort of narrative. And that I usually think is just hokey and cheesy and cheaply done and leaves a bad taste in my mouth. So I really was surprised when there was this beautiful narrative that functioned more off of illusion and creative inspiration from fairy tales than anything else. So, for example, like the Cinderella character is kind of a tragic figure. Her mother is dead, and she's buried under a white tree, and she will go and talk to the tree, and her mother will respond via the tree, and and not in some sort of overt ghostly voice. Sometimes you get words attached to her meaning, but other times like she needs something to save her brother from some sort of poison or something like that. And so a flower blooms. So she boils the flower, makes him drink the tea, and so he lives. Um, and the Cinderella figure will, will say about meeting some handsome noble, he's the kind of man that some ladies would cut off part of their foot to meet, which if you've read <laughs> the Grimm's, it's taken directly from that. But it's uh, an amazing tale where you don't want to give really anything away, but there is a young girl who is the daughter of an ineffective uh, moneylender, and she just kind of has to harden her heart and go and collect from reluctant people until she can recoup some of the losses that her family has been suffering to the point of impoverishment. And so she remarks to herself, well, I can spin silver into gold. I can take my dad's silver and collect the interest and turn it into gold. And a rather ruthless sort of fae creature, they never refer to it as fae or fairy, but it harkens from that a lot, overhears this and says, all right, well, you're going to spin silver into gold for me. And again, taking from Rumpelstiltskin, but not. And she finds herself in a series of adventures where you wind up weaving these storylines from these various fairy tale characters together into an extremely compelling narrative. So really check out Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Now, have you read any of her other works? I have not, but my wife has been saying, so have you read Scythe yet? Come on, you're reading Scythe. You're reading Scythe? You mm-hmm. finished Spinning Silver, so you're reading Scythe. Scythe is by her, is that correct? Um, I'm wrong. She did another book called Uprooted a few oh, years ago. Oh, that's the one. I that was, was the one, not Scythe. I was mainly referring to her Temeraire series. It's the Napoleonic Wars, but in this world, dragons are abundant and are used in aerial warfare. How is that different from the Napoleonic Wars? <laughs> the dragons can talk. Oh, okay. That's good. All right. Well, then I'm definitely in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first one is called His Majesty's Dragon. That came out back in 2006, and there have been one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine books in this series so far. And I've read most of them, and they're pretty good. It's an interesting take on, you know, alternative historical fiction. I think I would have stuck through the Waterloo section of Les Mis a lot better if there were dragons. But (laughs) (laughs) Do You Hear the People Sing would have been completely different. (laughs) Oh, so anything else, man? 
You know, um, there is something that I feel like I really need to talk about because I made so much mention of it, or at least as much mention of it as was appropriate some months ago on the podcast. Remember when I was going through all those Italian works and reading all those fencing manuals straight through in chronological order? Because that's what normal people do. Mm -hmm. There was the introduction to Agrippa's work that I found just so phenomenally compelling because it, it just was a celebration of everything that I had gotten into reading these things for other than the sword fighting. I mean, the historical context, the sociological context, the philosophical context. And I was at uh, Aresia, Boston, which is uh, a local con here. And I kind of looked up for a second. I'm like, wait a minute. Is that Ken Monshine, which is the author of that introduction? I'm like, no, he wouldn't be here. Or would he? And I found out that he was. And so when he was between things, I kind of went up to this professor of medieval and Renaissance um, history and went fanboy on him maybe more than a little. And it turns out that professors of medieval and Renaissance history are A, unaccustomed to, and B, not in any way averse to you going fanboy on their introduction to Agrippa's work. Yeah, that's probably not an experience he has very often, is it? Well, the look of surprise in his face kind of told the story. And then he just, <laughs> you, you, you are my audience. And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. Okay, honestly, <laughs> it may have been a weird experience for you and him, but I can name several, several SCA fencers who would have gladly traded places with you to spend some time with him. You know, I, he didn't seem weirded out or anything, but I mean, he was just kind of surprised that somebody was like, wait a minute, this scholarly work, that's that's what you're coming up to, to talk? Okay, no, I, I'm in, I'm in. Um, <laughs> just out of curiosity, what was he there for? Or was he just there to attend the con? Well, uh, he was doing a doing a seminar on the martial arts of Game of Thrones. And I looked at that in the listing and I thought, oh, geez, you know, I don't want to go to that. That's just going to be another. Here's how we do stunt fight coordination on screen. And, you know, as much as I might like stunt coordination, I find it interesting. I'm not sure. And it wasn't until it was about halfway through that particular presentation that the little light went off. Like, wait a minute, maybe that's a catchy title for historical martial arts. And I think I did see him. No. And I started looking at the program like, holy crap, uh, Sydney, Sydney, we have to go to this thing. I have to talk to this man right now. <laughs> if Very only you'd cool. known, you could have had a book signed. Yeah. I know. Oh, that would have been cool. You know what? You might want to – does he have a published email? Um. Well, yes, and he did kind of say, email me at the end of the conversation, so... so... Here's what I'm saying. Why don't you email him, say, hey, I really enjoyed our conversation, it was great, can we continue it, and B, if I send you Would this... Would you like to be on our podcast? Would you like... B, would you... Actually, that that's A, okay? Forget the other stuff, that's A. Would you like to be on our podcast? B, can I... I really enjoyed talking with you at the con. C, if I send you your book, will you please sign it? I mean, he's from Worcester. That's about an hour drive. I mean, I'm if I had a good reason to be there. <laughs> Don't pull a Sheldon. Don't show up on his front door asking for cookies. <laughs> Not unannounced, but like, you know, hey, after your class, 
ask, can I, you know, I happen to be in town this day. If you're teaching then, would you, could you sign the thing? Although it would not be the only book of his that I have signed because he used to, to do seminars at the Higgins Armory Museum. Oh, um, yeah. May God rest its metal soul. And he would walk through the gift shop and sign his own books before they were even sold. Now, Neil Gaiman does that in uh, airport bookstores. Oh, oh cool. that's hysterical. Yeah, if you're ever wandering through an airport, check out the bookstores. If you see a, a Neil Gaiman book, check it out. He may have signed it. You know, what you ought to do is you ought to also bring a blade and a metal engraver and have him sign sure. another blade. Hey, there you go. <laughs> no, because I'm trying to get him back into fighting, Brian, and if he gets his sword engraved, it's going to hang on the wall and never see action again. I, actually, I'm imagining him attaching a pen to the end of his rapier and just going ahead and signing my mask before I can even really bury anything. <laughs> just be happy he didn't do it in cursive. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it for my geek out. Oh, Brian, do you want to go next or do you want me to? Uh, I'll go. All righty. All right. So uh, I don't remember if I mentioned it last time, but I had just started Voltron on Netflix when last we talked. No, you hadn't. How have you been enjoying that? Well, it's not how have I been enjoying, it's how did I enjoy. Because I went through all eight seasons of that in about two and a half weeks. Wow. Wow. But I'm not surprised at all. You know, it started off kind of, you know, typical Voltron-y, Power Ranger-y kind of thing. Oh, we're going to fight the giant robot of the week. But it very quickly turned into a, a nice serialized story, some surprisingly deep character arcs. Um, and it was very compelling. I really, really enjoyed it. Not like every minute of it, but enough that when I sat down at the end of the night and was like, oh, I'll watch some TV. Should I watch some Enterprise? Uh, Being Human? Ooh, Voltron. I'll watch more Voltron. <laughs> See, my kids will watch that, and I've caught episodes of it, but I haven't been able to, to just stick with it all the way through because they tend to watch it on Saturday mornings when I like to do this strange adult thing called sleeping. <laughs> yeah, well, but I've enjoyed what I've seen. I have preserved the Saturday morning cartoons for myself. I make sure I continue to do that because Good. that's what Saturday mornings are for. Exactly. It's tradition. Good on you. Lately, it was it was Voltron, and I just started My Hero Academia, which had been recommended to me by several people. And it's it's pretty good. It's not I don't like it as well as Full Metal Alchemist, but it's keeping my attention. Cool. In my household, it's been the How to Train Your Dragons TV show. Amazon show called Dino Dana or True and the Rainbow Kingdom, which thankfully is not as horrible as it sounds. <laughs> you know, my daughter just started watching She-Ra and I caught a couple of episodes of that and I'm like, wow, this show has come a long way from the let's slap together some paint and some facsimile of a narrative so we can sell toys. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I've heard good things about that one. So have I. It's on my list. I think it's one my daughter would like, but uh, we have a policy that before she's able to watch anything brand new, mom and dad have to check it out first. That's very yeah, wise. The, that is a good move. What I've seen of it so far, which is not much, is really interesting because in this one, Shira is... Uh, well, the uh, wow, how do you describe this? The Shira's alter ego is actually a horde cadet who's selected to be the next captain who then defects to the side of the good guys and discovers that she is Shira. 
so that's really kind of an interesting dynamic where you have the bad guy going good guy and trying to navigate these relationships that are now a bit more complex because there are friendships and bonds that are formed on the other side as well. Cool. So yay for 80s cartoons being new again. Yeah, Voltron, (laughs) She-Ra, what are we going to see next? Well, I remember years ago they brought back Thundercats for yeah, Thundercats they for, brought yeah, back for a hot I minute. I did watch that. I I think my story is a lot like everyone else's. Oh yeah, they brought back Thundercats. I need to watch that, and he never did. Right. What we need to bring back is Mask, Mobile Armored Strike. Oh my gosh. It. Yes. <laughs> yes. Man, I haven't thought about that in ages. Oh, There's yeah. a good reason for not to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so apparently I happened to be walking by. I was in a game store slash comic book store. I was walking through kind of perusing the comics. And I did see, I forget which comic book company it is, but they have combined that whole toy universe into one, which means in one comic they had G.I. Joe Transformers, Mask, Micronauts, and Rom the Space Knight. I am not familiar with that one. Neither was I, but apparently it was a toy and comic back in the 80s. I don't think it ever got made into a cartoon, but whatever toy company that was, was it Hasbro or... Yes. Yeah, Hasbro. Beware the Hasborg, you will be assimilated. Hasbro had the license to it, and now all of these Hasbro 80s action titles have all been converged into an ongoing comic. They each have their own comic, but it's a shared universe now because that's the thing. Their technological and cultural qualities Boy have been merged into their own. <laughs> exactly. Cultural distinctiveness has been merged into our own. That's the phrase. Yes. Um, I'm also, I just started a series of books by Ben Aronovich. I have no idea if I pronounced that right, called Rivers of London, which is a sort of it's kind of Dresden-esque. It's a urban fantasy. The main character is a cop. He's just finished his, what they call it, the probationary period, and he gets assigned to the London Metropolitan Police's, Police's wizard as his apprentice. It's not, not as humorous as the Dresden Files, but it's interesting. I'm, I enjoyed the first book, so I started on the second one. I might have to check this out because I have been needing something new fiction-wise to read. Yeah, give it a try. The first book is, uh, gosh, I've forgotten the title already. It was kind of confusing because it's got a different title in the U.S. than it did in Great Britain. Midnight Riot? Yes, that's the first one. Cool. Uh, and then there is a, uh, a Rivers of London, Volume 1, which is apparently just a bunch of short stories. And so I, was, I had a hard time. I had to do a little bit of research to figure out where is the actual start of this. <laughs> and then, see, Civilization Six just released a new expansion, so that's going to consume my life next week. Is it the Godzilla expansion? It's called The Gathering Storm. It's the Godzilla added, expansion, yes. <laughs> <laughs> they added a lot of uh, natural disaster stuff to it, so kind of, yeah. It's a movie tie-in for when Godzilla comes out in May. <laughs> right. Even Civ is getting into the licensing deal. Three months later, all of a sudden, kaiju start appearing in the game. That would be awesome. <laughs> They don't tell anybody about it. It's just all of a sudden Godzilla rises from the ocean and destroys Carthage. (laughs) And then you find out why they added that giant death robot to the end of the game. Ah. (laughs) And in other news, we, of course, you guys know this, but the audience doesn't. 
we were invited to uh, participate in the City on a Hill actual play podcast, playing some Dungeons and Dragons 5th edition with people that we've never met in a game that we've never played in a, a forum that we've never tried before. On what could possibly go wrong? So being the uh, inveterate tinkerer that I am, I uh, signed into Roll20, started learning how to, to deal with that, making macros and character sheets and programming stuff. And so I spent the last probably three days just trying to figure out how that thing works. And honestly, they made it more difficult than it needs to be. They could have made it way, way simpler on the end user. It's very powerful, though. I'm really glad to hear that at least one of us is is doing their homework on how to do this. I, 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 for any of our audience, I will not be appearing on the show. I have some availability issues and some absolutely no knowledge of the system issues and personal issues, psychological issues. No, um, but uh, I won't be on the show, but I'm really stoked that you guys are going to be there. I've never played 5th edition before, so as soon as they invited us, I immediately ordered a player's handbook from Amazon. I I don't even remember. The, la- the last time I played something D&D-esque was when I was still living in Colorado, which also happened to be the last time I made a character sheet, which was about over seven years ago, which I found interesting and sad, really. <laughs> I took one look at Roll20. I provided the link that was given to us from City on a Hill. And I looked at the webpage, and I was like, no, Brian. (laughs) That's literally what happened, Mike. I I saw this, and I realized I don't have any 5.0. I've got an old 3.5 rule book that I picked up at a half-price bookstore for like eight bucks. But I don't have have any 5 material, so I figured if anyone's going to, Brian will. So I called him up. He helped me build the character, and we looked at Roll20 together. And I'm like, if anyone's going to figure this out, he is. Because the page I was looking at, I'm like, okay, is is this for making a character, or is this for teaching me how to do C-plus programming language? Oh, no. Oh, it's it's ridiculous. Uh, it turns out what James had found was the uh, the documentation on creating an automated character sheet, not inserting information uh, into an existing automated character yeah. sheet. So I actually was looking at programming language. Right. <laughs> All the curly so. braces and at bracket D20KLH1. What is this? Yeah. You know, what's funny is that uh, one of the people who volunteers at our church, we, we run a a baby pantry out of our church. Like one Saturday a month, we give away diapers, diaper wipes, other baby necessities that WIC does not cover. So we can fill in some of the gaps where people can't get other assistance. And this young man from my daughter's school said, hey, I'll volunteer. And it was on a day when my eldest couldn't be there. So he shows up and he's just kind of chugging along, being a good volunteer and being a junior high boy. And so part of that being not quite in tune with what adults are likely to be interested in was like, oh, I get all these Dungeons and Dragons 5.0 manuals from the library. And he starts talking to me about them and then has a very willing audience. So, and then finds out one of the other volunteers is very willing audience member. And the thing that we both learned from this is, oh, we don't have to spend money getting these books. We can get them on loan from the library through the ILL system. So yes, that is true. James, just saying, mm-hmm. options. That is an excellent, excellent suggestion, and I will be looking into that. See, 
there you go, guy. You're unnamed on our podcast and doing good for lots of folks. So kudos to you. <laughs> Moments like that make me think that I really need to get motivated and get off my butt and get some Geek at Arms business cards made up. That's not a bad idea. Because you can go on, I mean, there's so many like business card websites like Vistaprint and 10 bucks gets you 600 cards. Although I'll admit it, I'm a terrible geek at arms promoter because I'm like, oh, you're into D&D, you're into Christian stuff. You totally need to listen to Saving the Game. And I have had several people thank me for that. I mean, I do promote our podcast and I'm like, oh, you, I think you'd be into this. But when they are very much like D&D focused, I'm like, uh, there's there's a niche for that. Mm-hmm. 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 So, James, what are you geeking out about? Well, the last couple on the spot there. That's both, that is what we do here. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> the last couple of months, I've had a lot of new things that I have been geeking out to. This month has been me actually finishing geeking out to things, wrapping up some of the stuff that I've talked about in earlier podcasts. First off, I talked about. The- Don't say Mass Effect Three. <laughs> I wasn't even going to mention it in this podcast. <laughs> But now you have, and we have to put it in the show notes. Well done, Brian. (laughs) Actually, I was going to mention the book The Last Duel by Eric Yeager. I don't know if I mentioned it in the last podcast or the one before. It's about the last judicial duel fought in France in the late 14th century. It's a pretty quick read. It's only a couple hundred pages long. It's just with life, things have been so busy at home that I haven't had as much time to read as I want to. But it's a great look into the medieval judicial system and what trial by combat would have really looked like at this time period. And also a look into two powerful French noble families and all of the intricacies and uh, relationships there. If anyone is, you know, medievally history minded, I recommend picking it up and giving it a quick read. What else? Oh, my wife and I finally had a chance to go out and get a date night. Oh, go you guys. I know, right? We found in a town not far from us this place. It's an indoor play place. You go in, you drop off your kids, you sign them in. They have like an indoor playground. They've got TVs showing movies, uh, video game corner, play corners, blocks, all sorts of stuff for the kids to do of all ages. They serve them pizza as well, and all three of the kids love it. They love going to the play place. And of course, it costs money, but it's worth it for a few hours alone. So, Which is a lot cheaper than a babysitter for for three kids. It It is. Well, I don't know. Depends on the babysitter. And how cheap we feel like being. <laughs> but it's it's a chance for them to play with other kids as well. And they've got options. So this Children time, mingle with the humans, learn their ways. For exactly. one day you will have it's to like, pass as one of them. <laughs> Mommy, Daddy, do, do humans enjoy this? Yes, they enjoy it very much. Then I shall enjoy it too. <laughs> so we went and got dinner. And then we went to go to look for a coffee house. We found a couple, but... After searching for one that wasn't quite so busy and, or pretentious, we settled for, I didn't say settled, but we upgraded to a pie shop. And yes. And we went in, got our pie, sat down, and played the game Biblios. 
Oh, you talked about that last time. That sounds like a fantastic game. It was very enjoyable. And I will say our first playthrough probably didn't go exactly as you're supposed to in the rules, but that's because we were learning the game while eating pie. (laughs) So we were slightly distracted. It's a great game. I talked about it before. You're trying to, you know, build up your monastery first. And in a real quick rundown, without going into too much detail, is that you've got five different sets of victory points in five different categories. In pigments, holy books, monks, manuscripts, and forbidden tomes. And there's a board with that. And on top of each board has its own colored six-sided die. You put it on there, and they each show up with a value of three. And the cards that you get in your hand through a couple of different phases, you are trying to build up cards with points on them that correspond with one of those categories, pigments, monks, manuscripts, and so on. And there's a draw phase, and then there is an auction phase. And at the end, you count up what you have in each category, and the person who has the most points in that category gets that dice, and that dice is your victory points. Now, there are also church cards. Church cards can be used to either increase or decrease the value of the dice on the category. So say that you have got a lot of cards in the holy books. If you have a holy card that is a plus one, you're going to want to use that to change that three to a four. But you don't have a whole lot of pigments or forbidden tomes. You think, if I don't have all these cards, my opponent probably does. And if I get a holy card or church card, I'm going to use that to decrease your opponent's number. And then after it's all done, you lay it out. The person who has the the highest number for that category gets it. And the person with the most victory points wins. So it sounds like they have some mechanics in there. So you're not just four people playing solitaire, trying to out-solitaire each other, but you actually do have some cross-table strategy. There is definitely some cross-table strategy, which increases as the number of players goes up. And it can be up to a four-person game. And even with that many, I'd say 30 to 40 minutes is all it takes you to get through one solid game. Makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, Biblios and Pi, an excellent way to spend an evening. And at the time of the recording of this podcast, the movie How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, has not come out yet. It's coming out very soon. Very much geeking out about this movie. Have been looking forward to it for years now. My daughter is just beside herself with excitement for it. Like, she wants to watch the first two movies, one a night, every night, leading up to it. Which part of me says, no, dear, that's way too much. But another part of me is saying, I'm so proud. (laughs) You know... Generally, I would I would say that's way too much, but how old is she now? She is six and a half. And how many of these movies are there? This is the third one? Yes. You know, at that point, watching one movie a day for a couple of days leading up, probably not going to do complete psychological damage. You <laughs> only get to enjoy things, you know, when you're so young. Yeah. I am going to let her do at least each movie once and then over the course we maybe watch an episode or two of the dreamworks tv show yeah if you if you are stringing all of the media all together then you're probably looking at a complete brain wipe not her she'll be fine but you you you, (laughs) will not survive probably not and of course in the next podcast i'll give her a full report of it and i'm sure it will be a glowing review these movies have not disappointed yet and i doubt the third one will either In fact, I'm looking on IMDb. There has been some early reviews, and it's already got, like, 
8 out of 10 stars. Uh, and finally, the last thing that I'm geeking out to is we've talked quite a bit about gaming with what Brian and I are going to do on City on the Hill as gamers, which for he and I, it'll be the first time in forever since we actually mm-hmm. got to do a game as players. But I might actually be able to get a game started up myself as a GM with a Monster of the Week game. Oh, great. I found some people who live relatively close to me. They're SCA people who also love gaming. And they've got some free time, and they've really been missing doing any gaming as well. And I've been wanting to do a Monster of the Week campaign forever. I don't have a campaign or an idea yet. I have the beginnings of an idea, and that's enough to start with. So I am finishing my read-through of the manual, which honestly is a pretty enjoying read on its own. I've become pretty familiar with the mechanics by listening to the latest arc on the Adventure Zone podcast. If you do give it a try, uh, fair warning, there is a good amount of adult language in it, but the Amnesty arc uses the Monster of the Week system. That's how I became familiar with it and thought I would give it a try because it does sound like a lot of fun. Once that gets off the ground, I will keep you gentlemen and our listeners informed. And I think that will wrap it up for Geek Out. Unless I, any- did have, Go ahead. I did have one more item. Uh, I'd forgotten to mention, talked last time that I was looking forward to seeing Glass, the new uh, Shyamalan film set in the same world as uh, Unbreakable. Yes. I did see that. Oh, yeah. Is that out? It is out. It's been out for three weeks, I think, now, maybe four. So how uh, was well, it? Me paying attention. All right. How did you how enjoy did- it? <laughs> I have a different scale for Shyamalan films than I have for movies in general. That's fair. Shyamalan films and movies based on video games get their own scales because they just they kind of need a little bit of a curve. I hey, like don't you don't you talk bad about video game movie? That Super Mario Brothers movie was phenomenal. Dungeon Siege. No, right. it was. I I I just I just want you to know I, I threw up in my mouth a little bit for both of you just then. All right. <laughs> I, I can make it worse and say Wing Commander. I never saw that one, thankfully. So Great Fighter. Oh, oh! I saw Double Wing Dragon. Commander. It was oh, oh, so bad. Oh. <sighs> yeah, that, that was one that I took back to the video store the very minute it was over because I was embarrassed to have it in the house. <laughs> I I went to go see Dungeon Siege in the theaters because oh dear, and it was it was the cheap theater. But still, I walked out and I locked eyes with a dude who was in theater with me, and we just both just kind of <laughs> we just shook our heads, and I think we both agreed that we would speak of this to no one, and um, and and I looked oh. at my wife and said, "Okay, we're gonna go home. I'm gonna watch the transporter to clean this out of my mind." In my what defense, was that movie that we came out of, and you immediately apologized for choosing it. Was that the Musketeer? Was it the the one that was like Musketeers, but directed by like John Woo or something? Something like that, where he was like, are we watching The Three Musketeers or Spider-Man? I don't know. Yes, I think it was that. <laughs> and, and I remember coming out of the theater, you just looked at me and says, I'm sorry. <laughs> In my defense, when I went to go see Wing Commander, it was with a couple of friends, and none of us knew that it was from a video game. And yeah, we could tell by the time we left <laughs> well anyway back to the real topic which was glass <laughs> hooray yes uh, it turns out there was actually another movie in between unbreakable and glass called split james mcavoy playing a guy with dissociative identity disorder 
what we used to call multiple personalities that you now have to be correct about it. And in my opinion, you have to watch both Unbreakable and Split for Glass to make any sense whatsoever. And Glass was better than Split, but not as good as Unbreakable. So there's my review. Okay. All right. Well, moving on to different movies, we're kicking back off our next series of Film Club here on Geek at Arms. The first three, we took a look at classic and well-loved science fiction movies and ones that are kind of a mainstay and that we believe anyway that if you are a lover of science fiction movies, you need to watch at least once. And those were Forbidden Planet, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and we ended it with Blade Runner. We'll come back to more science fiction movies, I'm sure, later. There are just so many on the list that deserve to be looked at. But I thought it would be fun if we switched it up from science fiction to fantasy movies. And that will be the next three movies that we look at. The first one we were going to look at was the movie Lady Hawk, but it's almost impossible to find to watch. At least streaming. Yeah, that's true. It's streaming. The DVD's available on Amazon for like 30 bucks, but I'm willing to bet we could probably pick one up at a used DVD store for 8 Just none of us have done that yet. So for our first movie, we went to our next choice, and that was the 1988 Ron Howard-directed, George Lucas-created Willow. I got to say, when I heard that we were doing Willow, I was really excited because... The willow bug bit me hard in 1988. Like, I was not a puzzle guy, but since they didn't have enough posters, I would buy willow puzzles and put them together and then glue them onto backing and hang them on my wall. I had the soundtrack. I wore that tape out. I had the miniature collectible action figures that were just die-cast metal and set them on my shelf. So I... I thought this was just the best thing to happen to me now that there was no more Star Wars. You know, I don't blame you for getting the soundtrack. It was pretty solid. It was really kind of interesting. I showed this to my girls a few years ago, but I wasn't really watching with the critical lenses on. And this was really my first look saying, okay, so how do we break down this movie? How do we analyze this film? So this was an interesting look for me. It's probably been the first time in more than more than 15 years since I've watched it. So I was remembering it, but with a relatively fresh set of eyes looking at it in a new perspective. And I'm sure this is something that you have realized, the two of you, and multiple others have realized. It quickly dawned on me that um, I'm watching uh, Star Wars Dungeons & Dragons. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, that that is really kind of picking up on one of George Lucas's early themes for his most successful films, mm-hmm. where you have sort of the Gideon figure. He is the smallest person from the smallest family, from the smallest tribe in all of a downtrodden Israel, that all of a sudden through, in this case, not, not so much God, but through just the turn of events, is chosen to do X, Y, or Z. This was definitely... Uh, Luke Skywalker, who was nobody, who came to do something. This was the idea behind the Ewoks joining the fight. This was part of some of his early concepts of the film that would eventually become Apocalypse Now, that how is it that this group of people can stand up to a superpower and be victorious? And 
yeah, that really did contribute to the feel of Star Wars made D&D Star Wars. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I found out later that Lucas actually conceived the idea of Willow back in 1972. The original title was Munchkins, and uh, he, he wanted to create a fantasy movie with similar intent and ideas to that of Star Wars. And I mean, he it's not really subtle either in, in some yeah, well, of the you, elements and themes. You hear him talk about the both movies, Star Wars and Willow, and he frequently references Joseph Campbell. And he was pretty much just writing point for point the hero's journey on both of those films. Yeah. Not really surprising that they very much echo each other. Here's just a couple of things I wrote while watching it. And I will admit, I finally was able to sit down and watch it the night before we recorded this. So, <laughs> one, I wanted it fresh in my mind and it, life with three kids. So, in both Star Wars and Willow, we have a an overlord with dark magical powers who employs a nigh-invincible enforcer in black armor. You have a rogue-slash-scoundrel-slash-pilot with a heart of gold who grows to be a great leader. He calls himself, this character says, I'm the greatest swordsman who ever lived. Just substitute swordsman for pilot, and that tells you what you need to know. Both have a chosen one. Both have a hero or an individual of small stature, either physical or status-wise, who has to leave the farm in order to become a hero. And I lost count of how many Yoda figures there were in the movie. Oh, and don't forget the pair of uh, comic relief characters. Yes, absolutely. So, shall we just jump in? I think that we should probably take some cues from, from Brian. And he had like three or four questions that we could probably use to guide this and then maybe open it up just a little bit after that. And I think the the first question was what? What is important about this film? Why why talk about it? Well, since I asked the question mostly to myself, uh, I'll take the first crack at answering it. At this particular point in time, the mid to late 80s, there's kind of a lack of, of fantasy films. There's sort of a lack of the, the swords and sorcery uh, kind of movies in general. You've got Conan, you've got Legend, and... Uh, that's pretty much it at, at around that time. There were quite a few, like, B-level movies that were sword and sorcery, but none of them, they were all just mostly carbon copies of each other and just completely, utterly forgettable. Yeah. And most Pearl, of those... Beastmaster, yeah. they yeah. were just clones. Yeah. And Willow was kind of elevated that fantasy film to a higher level. It was a, it was a very major movie. Del Kilmer was a pretty popular actor. He was on the rise at that time. He had done Top Gun just a few years before, I believe, and and more. Yeah, and of course, Lucas was still riding high off of the Star Wars films. Ron Howard wasn't an, a complete unknown, but this was probably his first really large blockbuster. And so putting a fantasy movie at that level hadn't really been done too often before. Uh, there were some examples early, early in the filmmaking history, but they were usually based on the, the Greek myths, things like uh, Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, but even those were still B-movies. And so it was a nice step forward seeing fantasy being a little bit more mainstream. And then in terms of the film craft, Willow's in this weird place where the technology was just starting to shift toward more digital stuff. Now, of course, all and of the And it was largely responsible for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lucas. Um, David Muren, the visual effects supervisor, apparently came to Howard and Lucas and said, you know, you're, you're wanting to do these transformation shots, 
And the typical way you do that is you've got some puppets, you've got some makeup, and you do some cutting away, you do some dissolves, and you, you do some reaction shots. And when you come back from the reaction shot, the transformation's a little further forward. If you want to see a really great, awful example of this, uh, one of the the Howling movies has a werewolf transformation that is literally three minutes long. It's hilariously oh, no. bad. And you're, you're cutting away from the, the werewolf transforming to the woman screaming, and she's got this, like, pot of acid in her hands, and she just stands there screaming, and then you cut back to the werewolf, and the transformation's a little further along, and you see stuff falling off of him. She cuts back, and she's still screaming, and she's still got the pot of acid. She waits until the werewolf is entirely transformed before throwing the acid on him. It's like... It took him three minutes to change. That's not a threat. <laughs> <laughs> you could have been out the door in the car and two blocks away by now. Right. This building could have been on fire, lady. <laughs> yeah, but that's the way the transformations had been done at that time. I think that was 86 or 87, that and movie. Willow, Willow employed a number of those. In a number of scenes, they used those transformation technologies uh, right. until uh, you got to the into the climax when... When things really right, the, took off. The transformation when Bab Morda's turning all the soldiers into pigs, that's the, the classic transformation type of thing where you see Val Kilmer with the tusk in his mouth and then you cut back to Bab Morda chanting stuff and you get back to him and he's got a mask on. But the morphing technology, David Murin came and says, you know, I think we can do this in such a way that you don't have to cut away. And they said, okay, well, well what are you thinking? He says, I don't know. I just think we can. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually he actually tried to take a couple of stabs at it. I mean, when they did something entirely digitally rendered, they realized that there was no way that they could come up with something photorealistic. But when they were able to sort of put a wire fr- like a polygon wire frame on one figure, put a similar one on another figure and then match pixels to locations and then feed those through the computer and let them let the computer do the mapping from um, from one pixel to another, they were able to come up with a smooth transition into this digital morph. Or should I have not said this and let the visual effects specialist <laughs> have done that? No, you, you described it pretty well. Uh, and that, that morph technology, funny enough, I was watching the documentaries and learned that they spelled it with an F originally. And then when people started spelling it, quote, properly with the PH, at the end, he just didn't say anything because he didn't want anybody to realize that he'd misspelled it the whole time. Uh, <laughs> I thought that it was a, I actually assumed it was an acronym. It may be. I thought it was like uh, a patented term for the, for the process, their specific name for their specific way of doing it. Well, that might be. Well, we'll have uh, to actually, you know, fact check ourselves with these ideas at some point. Yeah. And both Murin and the guy that invented the technology both credited one another for coming up with that word. Neither of them could remember who actually was a said morph. <laughs> that means they were too busy trying right, to make yeah. it work to figure out who named it. Well, yeah. apparently it took this guy three months to write the software. He said he started in, in the beginning of September and ended near the end of December. It's like that's a lot of time to put into R&D while you're in production because I think they were at, at the end of production. They were wrapping and he's developing the software, and they don't know if it's going to work yet. And that was a that is, a huge leap. <laughs> that is also ILM style, if you look at Star Wars. So Yes, very much. Yeah. Do we have the technology to do this? No. We'll invent it. <laughs> but this was the first time that you had digital techniques being applied to photographic footage. They'd already done the stained glass night for young Sherlock Holmes, 
But that was a fully CG character that they're just superimposing onto the film. This wasn't manipulating the film itself with the computer. So the morph was the first time that was done. And that opened the door. They didn't do any digital compositing in Willow. um, And Muren expressed frustration that he could see that that was where things were headed and they just couldn't do it yet. But it's what opened the door to it and said, okay, hey, we can get this great-looking imagery by running the photographic plates through the computer. What else can we do with it? And so even though Willow... I was say, that's kind of a shame because there are a lot of areas where Willow really could have benefited from the digital compositing rather than oh, yeah. these optical. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes you could re- it's really obvious when you have some differences of scale that you have optical compositing going on just because when you're doing optical compositing, it, it's kind of obvious that you have, okay, this was filmed on a green screen and it was brought together with this footage filmed elsewhere. Like when we have uh, the brownies standing on oh, Willow and Migosh. Back then, wouldn't it, have been a, uh, wouldn't it have been a blue screen back in the day? It is, it is blue for film usually uh, because the blue record in film is a bit cleaner uh, than it is in video. So I think there's some uh, chemistry stuff in there that makes it a little bit easier also. But the trouble with the optical printer is every time you go through another layer and you you do the printing, you lose a little bit of richness in your blacks. And that's why you can clearly see the cutouts. Everything looks a little bit grayer when it's been composited on with an optical printer. And that's one of the things that you, the benefit in digital compositing is you can correct for that. You can take that, that extra contrast back out, even if you're doing it with real film. But yet another problem I always had with the brownies is, and this is something they actually could have fixed at that time with that technology, is that you're kind of moving the film to follow Willow when the brownie's on his shoulder or whatever, and you can see that he's not reacting to the fact that this guy is walking around. You know, he's like, mm. yeah. And if they had just put them on like one of those uh, balance boards, you know, that's got the round bottom and just had the, the brownies do all of their acting standing on this thing, it would have looked like they were standing on an an unstable surface, and I think it might have worked a little bit better. That's interesting. Uh, <laughs> I don't know that that would work, but it's like it would have been a simple thing to try, and it would have at least made them look like they weren't standing on you know this rock-solid surface all the time. We're going to get one tweet from Ron Howard saying, dude, we tried this, and this is why it didn't work <laughs> here. I would be over the moon if we got a tweet from Ron Howard over this. <laughs> I know, right? My response will be, well, Ron, why don't you come on the next show, and uh, you can defend it live in person. You talk to us about that. We'd love to hear your perspective. Yes. Heck, Um, you know, if we got Warwick Davis chiming in on this, that's when I would be over the moon. But, you know, that's just me. (laughs) Maybe we'll tag him on it and he say something. Another piece that there was a a bit of technology that was used in Willow and was used uh, as far back as Return of the Jedi, and that's the Go Motion Puppets. Oh, yeah. Oh, real quick. I know this is this is me just being a complete jerk to our visual effects specialist. It was (laughs) also Go Motion was first used by Phil Tippett in the filming of The Empire Strikes Back with the Adat Walkers. Oh, right. At least that's, that's what Wikipedia said. And since that's, you know, the Internet, I guess it's true. I don't know. That's true. I, I believe it probably was developed for the, the walkers now that you mention it. I know it was used for uh, a couple of things in Jedi. They wanted to use it for the Rancor, but wound up just using a puppet. But that particular technology, it's similar to stop motion in that you've got the you're, – you're taking – how to express it? 
With stop motion, you pose your puppet, you take a picture of it, then you go and you pose them again and you take a picture of it. And the thing that you don't get with that is motion blur. Motion blur. Because you're getting a, a nice razor sharp image. You don't get any any blur from it. But with the go motion, because you're actually shooting it in somewhat close to real time, the puppet is kind of an animatronic and it's being controlled like a robot by the computer and the camera has got the same thing. Uh, and so you do get some some motion blur to it and you tend to get a little bit smoother motion because you don't have that uh, human error of, okay, well, the hand was, is supposed to be moving in a straight line and it kind of moves in this little jagged line because we didn't get everything exactly right when we were posing it. And there's some charm to that for sure in watching Mighty Joe Young or whatever, the, the old Harryhausen stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You want to be really convinced that Val Kilmer is jumping onto the head of this giant two-headed dragon. Um, his name is Ebersisk. Show some respect. Ebersisk. Ebersisk. Named after Siskel and Ebert. Ah, I did not. Because <laughs> that's how Lucas kind of viewed them. Oh, yeah. And General Kale is also named after a Hollywood film critic. Like, the bad guys are named after film critics. Mm -hmm. uh, I did not know that. That's hilarious. Sorry, go on. Two-headed dragon. Right. So when, you, when you're saying that, you really want uh, there to be a little bit more verisimilitude than you get from King Kong. As, you know, as much as I like King Kong and I like to watch it, and I, I enjoy that, uh, for that dragon, it would not have gone as well with the herky-jerky stop-motion look. Anybody else have anything to say about why Willow is important? You mean other than we get to – well, okay, I'll, I'll say this. It is really uncommon that we get to see a little person on screen sans makeup and sans costume. There's usually – the little person is usually not a person on screen. Uh, mm -hmm. They are the dwarf or they're the orc. And it is – I think it's one of the things where we've we've sort of overlooked a class of actors – when we want to stick someone in a costume for an effect, when you know, we have talent, we have actors here that can fill a number of roles. And here we are having a film that is focused on the little person. And I think that especially given that Warwick Davis was 17 when he did this film. Mm -hmm. And yeah. to have such a young actor take such a huge role is really kind of a phenomenal undertaking you know, as a it, taking a look from a you know detached professional perspective, it's like somebody, um, you know, writing their first novel when they're 16 or 19. And I think that we could say a lot of things about the directing of the film in terms of this was supposed to be big drama, and the the directing appeared to be in the direction of melodrama. So you get a little bit of this, you know, over the top in just about every scene, but. Given in the context Hard to of the do movie, much else with that script, yeah, <laughs> fair, fair. Back to the the casting though, and I, I believe this is true. But according to Warwick Davis, the film had the largest ever casting of little people at that time for the uh, the Nelwyn Village and all of the extras there. They had two hundred and forty actors. That is impressive. Yeah. And not just um, adults, but you saw children as well of all ages. And while we're talking about these scenes filmed in the in the Nelwyn Village, 
I got to say that watching this as as an adult, this is the first time I was really paying attention to these performances. And the actress, uh, Julie Peters, who played Kaya, I actually thought that she had some of the most emotionally resonating performance. Like she seemed to have a very natural performance like this really seemed like somebody's wife who is desperately going to miss her husband and realizes some of the gravity of him leaving the village going up to this crossroads where anything could happen and then making his way back. That's a big Mm -hmm. deal, a really big deal. Same here. This is probably my first time seeing it as an adult. And some of my favorite scenes in the entire movie were at the Nelwyn village and Willow with his family because it felt so real. I felt like a fly on the wall on a little fantasy world family. Uh, maybe that's one of the things that grounds the film is that we have these things where we can resonate with this character in this extremely otherworldly environment. I mean, we're shown from scene one where we have fantasy animals that are that are crawling around these death dogs, which, OK, little aside on the practical effects on the death dogs. I think that they did a good job on these. Uh, if you want to see this this idea of a costume on a dog done badly, go watch Attack of the Killer Shrews and just be prepared to laugh with your family <laughs> in 1954. Well, the good thing about them in this is that at no time do they ever really zoom in for a close-up of the dogs. There's either for more in, than a second. Yeah, they're always seen in motion or the camera is passing over them. And I yeah. think that was wise. Well, there was some actual, like, real-world horror moment from on set. I heard that as these dogs were being filmed, one of the dogs was really taking to his role and was caged and was just snarling and barking and pushing his head through the bars. And the bars caught hold of the prosthetics. And so the dog's mouth just kept going further and further out the death dog's prosthetic <laughs> mouth. So we had this <laughs> snarling mouth out of a mouth. Just and uh, it, Alien dog. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We've talked a lot about the beginning. Was there anything else we wanted to say about why this movie is important? Or we just want to jump into the movie itself? Yeah, let's. Let's take to the movie. I think we've mm-hmm. covered a lot of the, the big stuff. We kick off and we see the Nakmar Castle and, you know, a baby being born. And I have to say, for all of her mistakes, Bav Morda must have at least read a partial evil overlord list. <laughs> because, you know, she learns there's a prophecy. A baby's going to be born who will spell her doom. What does she do? She rounds up all the pregnant ladies. The smart thing would have been that, you know, we're providing free child care and checkups and doctor visits instead of I'm going to throw you in a cage. Would anybody have believed the death nun, though, when she said free child care? Uh, you're right. They, they, uh, they would not. They would not have. But she does the smart thing. She gathers up all the, uh, the, the pregnant ladies. And when the correct child is finally born, which I kept meaning to go back and look at that scene again where they check the child's arm for the mark. Because I didn't think anything about it seeing it when I was younger. But as an adult, when they, they do show the birthmark, I'm like, wait a minute. Did they just rip off one of Tolkien's runes? I believe they did. I, yeah. they, I thought it was a high five. <laughs> well, I, I saw it 
and the moment passed. Uh, you see like, it a couple of times. Okay. But, but ripping off Tolkien, I don't understand what you mean. You mean like a group of smaller people having to leave their village and get off the road because it's being patrolled by writers of the big people? I, I, I'm not seeing any parallels here. What you're are you right. talking it's, about? That's never happened before in a book <laughs> or other series. And then, uh, you know, she goes, let's prepare the ritual. And apparently to kill a small child, you have to prepare a ritual. Okay. I'm going to jump in here real quick because I have some absolutely irrelevant information. Um, because I've read – I told you that the willow bug bit me hard. I read the novelization. <laughs> and this isn't film canon, but they said that they can't just kill it because then her spirit will come back into another child and just start it over again. That and was my thought. The ritual. You know, it doesn't matter because it's not explained in the film. If it, It's got to be a film really can't rely on a book to, to make sense. Like, it's got to stand on its own. And I thought that there must be more to the prophecy. Well, then this movie is in trouble. Yeah, seriously. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying it's not, but let's keep going. It does ask the viewers to make some leaps of logic. Uh, she goes off to prepare the ritual. The, the mother pleads, please, my baby, please save her. And the, the midwife takes the baby and runs. And she must, okay. be, she must be super fast walking with that child for as much ground as she covers. And my thought was, you know, Bav Morta did all the right things. She gathered the pregnant lady, you know, had them under lock and key, and the baby was born. She had control of the situation. For the midwife to run off with the child, honestly, that's, that's HR's fault. That's bad employee screening. You know, yeah, that, that, really that's is. a bad hiring process. That's not Bav Mora's fault. Like, check IDs, folks. Check IDs. Got to check those badges. You know, coming in and going out. Absolutely. And she's on the run for quite a while because first the baby goes from being born to having a full head of hair. Held on by corn syrup. Held on by, yes, that's right. Held on by corn syrup. And uh, we get our Moses moment. The baby being um, put on the bit of earth and shoved down the river. This is not, you know, I'm just going to jump in real quick. If you're going to go Moses, you also have to go the fact that this is also Mobley. This is Sargon II, which his story actually predates Moses, but also predates the Israelite contact with the Babylonians. But, you know, that aside, this is the point being. This is a, a mythological theme. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> That's why we had you. Yes. And who should find the baby but little little Nelwyn family? And then what happens? I didn't see the film. <laughs> <laughs> you read he read the book and listened to the soundtrack. See, this is the problem. Is this was I was in the Church of the Nazarene in the 1980s. We weren't allowed to see movies back then. My parents were really strict. Only one of those things was not true. Yeah, I saw the film like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I I had to wait until it came out on VHS. Because, joking aside, at that time, my parents did not believe in going to the theater. A lot of movies that are kind of considered pillars of filmmaking and required viewing at that time, I just I never saw until they hit the video store. My parents were really awful at being Pentecostal, so I went to all the movies. <laughs> my parents were really big on making sense, and they said, this church bylaw does not make any. You can go to the theater, but you, you, you can't go to the theater, but you can watch it on video. You guys are stupid. But there's actually a huge... <laughs> I, I wish your parents had been friends with my parents. <laughs> oh, man. I came to find out as an adult, there's like a huge sociological factor that went into why those bylaws came into being. But we'll tackle that on the religion and sociology on the Geek at Arms podcast at some 
No, we'll never hit that. But anyway. <laughs> but I'm interested. <laughs> so am I, actually. That'll be episode 17A or, or E depending on when we get to it. Anyway. How many uh, appendices we want. Yes, exactly. Uh, so it, the baby found by the Nelwyn family, dad, Willow, and two little children who are just absolutely freaking adorable. And uh, we meet the, I don't know what he is, the town businessman, burgle cut, whatever. And we meet his wife. And you're absolutely right, Kaya. What was the actress's name? Uh, Julie Peters, I believe. She was just fantastic. Just like a mom, just sees a baby, sees a baby in need, picks it up, helps it out. Oh, my husband's talking. Oh, he, whatever he's saying, I don't care. There's a baby here who needs me. <laughs> I'm going to listen to my, like, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that you can imagine. I know this is just complete fanfic here, but, but run with me. I can imagine her saying to her friends, oh, yes, I always listen to my husband when he decides to make sense. That's exactly right. <laughs> Head cannon accepted. Take it home, and they see that it is a Daikini child, which I have to say, I love the names for the races that they give each other. Nelwins, Daikinis. Um, Brownies is a bit of a cheap one, but, you know, you can't hit them all. It's an oldie but goodie. And I don't think they ever mentioned fairies. They're just there. At this point, we get to the Nelwyn village, and they're having a, a festival. And this is the first time me seeing this movie since being involved in the SCA. And really diving in headfirst into medieval and historical research. The Nelwyn village to me felt so real. The garb, I fell in love with it. I'm not seeing anything modern. It all looked like natural fibers and fabrics like linen. The colors were beautiful and a hand-woven trim on everybody. And blues and purples and greens and reds. Hollywood is the biggest cause of this. People think of the Middle Ages, that the clothes that they wore just look like somebody took a burlap sack, cut some holes in it, and there's your tunic. There's your clothes and your pants. <laughs> a bit of rope for your belt, and you're off to the fields to plow. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, we have documentation. We have scrolls. We have illuminations and paintings and more showing the colorful clothing that people wear. I mean, the ability to use natural dyes on fabric has been around for thousands of years. And at one point in history, people's fabric and the look of it was just common peasants was getting so fancy, they wrote laws, sumptuary laws, to say, no, 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 that's too rich looking for you. You're just a commoner. You can only wear this much cool stuff. If you're a high-class merchant, you can wear a little bit more cool stuff. But the super bling-bling is saved for the nobility. It was really nice. On this uh, topic, the production designer for Willow was Alan Cameron, who apparently studied at the Royal College of Art in London. That makes sense. When I first was looking at the clothing, I was thinking, this has a very much of, a, of an Anglo-Saxon look and feel to it. But then I looked a little harder, but that's kind of my chosen area that of history that I love the most, so everything looks Anglo-Saxon to me. <laughs> but looking a little closer, I thought, no, no, this doesn't look Anglo-Saxon. In fact, there's very little... This is my personal opinion. There's very little Western European influences on the fashion look and feel of a lot of this movie. Their clothing looked more like what you would see coming out of medieval Novgorod, like Western Russia. It had a very a Slavic feel to it as far as where the trim was located, the collars, the cut, even down to some of like the footwear. 
I'll be honest. There's been a lot of people in the SCA who I wish looked as good as the Nelwins did. <laughs> Toss the modern fabric. Mm-hmm. I want to talk a little bit about the character of Willow himself. Um, yeah. Following on from the the big Nelwin party, we've got actually getting into the story, and his attitudes toward the world, I think, are foundational to what make this movie enjoyable for me. Uh, from the very beginning, I mean, of course, we've talked about how Warwick Davis is very unlikely leading man in a blockbuster movie. I mean, whose idea was that? Well, obviously, George Lucas's idea was that. But it's an unexpected and an un- unlikely choice. And Willow himself is an unexpected and unlikely hero for a story like this. And he knows it himself. He's just a farmer. He wants to be a sorcerer, but he thinks he needs to be a sorcerer first before he can do great things. Mm-hmm. And, of course, all of the story is him learning that you know, who he is is sufficient. But one of the things that I really liked was they find the daikini baby, and his kids ask, well, what's a daikini? And he says, they're giants. They live far away from here. It was always related to, we're the normal people. You know, we're what it means yeah. to be human, and the daikini are the freaks. They're the giants. Uh, <laughs> and then you get this this scene with 200 well, of these people. The first scene that we get later in the movie of the tavern slash bar would lend credence to the freak label. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, and then if you, you're seeing the behind-the-scenes stuff and you've got George Lucas and you've got Ron Howard and you've got all the grips and all the camera people, and they look they look as bewildered and bemused as probably Warwick Davis probably does being surrounded by huge people. I mean, suddenly they're the ones who are out of place. And I thought that was really interesting to look. And I, I think Howard even mentioned it in one of the behind-the-scenes documentaries. Like, I come into this village and... I'm the person who's out of place because they're all just having fun. They're talking to each other. They're enjoying one another. This is a real village of people who are relating to each other, and I'm the one who's who's not quite right. And Willow treating the entire world as I'm the normal guy and everybody else is off their nut, I thought was that's what makes me like him as a hero, as a as a protagonist, because I can understand that. I can understand being the guy that's totally out of place as an extreme introvert. Anytime I'm in a place with more than four people in it, you know, I feel like Ron Howard in the Nellwood Village. Like, I do not belong here. <laughs> and Willow out in the world among the Daikini, I, I feel just like that. But his problem is never along the lines of, I can't do this, I'm too small. He mentions at once that Mad Mardigan is, is huge, and so he'd be an advantage to have. But his, his uh, refusal of the call, to put it into uh, Joseph Campbell terms, was not... I'm too little to be a hero. It's I'm just a farmer. I'm not a sorcerer. I'm still just replaying portions of the film in my head, and I'm trying to figure out if there is one Daikini who is not off his or her nut in this film. Um, <laughs> I don't not, think so. Eric, maybe. No, maybe, but we only get like five lines from this guy. So, well, you know, right. and, and just handing off the sword. Win this war for me, Mad Mardikin. I've... I've never believed in you before, but since you started listening to Nelwins, now, now I think you're making sense. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Maybe he's not uh, quite all there either. Our army has destroyed Galador. Like, wait, an entire castle? Yeah, we were asleep at the wheel, I will admit. <laughs> that's my bad. <laughs> I, I went down to the town to get some rutabagas. I came back and the castle was gone. So like, I turned to my army and I said, wait. guys, you had one job. It's like, wait. Something's different. Don't tell me. The castle. 
put this smoking crater here. <laughs> Speaking of, real quickly, the Galadorn army, uh, I'll just mention again about the real-world influences. Not really anything Western European. All of the Galadorn very much looking like a, an army of Greek hoplites on horseback. And uh, I like that again, except for Eric, looking like the, uh, the, the golden general that he is. Blonde hair, beard, all of that jazz. Looking very heroic, so to speak. And what's funny is I always thought that his sword was fantasy nonsense mm -hmm. until I saw something that looked a sword of its ilk was its basis in the Higgins Armory Museum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought the exact same thing. And I remember as a kid, I'm like, oh, that thing looks stupid. And then found out much <laughs> later it's actually a, a slightly fantasy-esque but still pretty spot-on reproduction of a 17th, 18th century Indian pata. So you get to learn a new thing every day. And I will say, when we finally see Eric actually using it in the big battle at the end, he's using it exactly how it was meant to be, with big sweeping cuts and with a shield. So, well done. Well done, whoever was working for Lucas and, and putting that in. You did it right. One of the things, that, as we're following Willow's journey through this world of Daikinis, we do find a couple of really human elements that I thought was just absolutely fascinating. And I, I think one of my favorite scenes in this rewatch was Willow and Mad Mardigan by the waterfall. And we have two people who are, who are being very paternal towards this child. I mean, I think this film really is kind of living in an era where they have certain maternal and paternal roles that are that are gender ascribed. I mean, in the end, we have Sorsha holding this baby and like, uh, wait, what in our history says that this is a good idea? Please put the baby <laughs> right. down. Yeah. Um, but in one scene where we actually do have some character development, where Mad Mardigan is doting over this this baby, he's given her an informal moniker, like he's showing his affection with a nickname, Sticks, and it's like, oh, here's this thing that I absolutely loved. And so we have this permissive father and this protective father, and the protective father's like, no, you never, ever, ever give up baby Blackroot, and snatches it away from both of them. My mother raised me on Blackroot, puts hair on your chest. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> It's a wonderful little character moment where we actually get to see a softer side of Mad Mardigan in a way that makes sense in the film. The scene has zero point story-wise, and it is all character in just a few seconds. So I, I liked that little scene there. And I do want to mention that apparently Val Kilmer ad-libbed most of his lines. So, no kidding. Yeah, so that scene where he makes the baby talk to Elora, like, you see what he did? He's Doa Blackwoot. That's all him. Well, yeah, and also him picking up the actor that played Migosh and swinging him around was also improv. And the actor whom he was picking up was not informed. So when he's like, okay, yeah, all right, all right, all right, and backing up, that's not acting. Yeah, it makes me wonder if the scene later where they're captured and being dragged through the snow, at one point Willow trips, and I can't tell if it was blocked that way or if he actually did trip in the snow being pulled by this horse. And without even taking another step, step, Val Kilmer reaches down, picks him up, puts him on his shoulders. I swear, I, that has to be blocked. Oh, please let that be blocked, because someone will get hurt doing that for real. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I don't know. They actually put him on that sled, so... <laughs> yeah. 
There were, well, if we're getting to the snow scene with the sled, this is, I think, one of the most visually interesting sequences. It's absolutely beautiful, and it's just a wonderful idea as an escape. Like, okay, you got to get down the mountain. Let's just hop on a shield and go for it. It doesn't really have to make sense. In the movie, it worked. <laughs> Despite the fact that you actually see sled runners on the bottom of this, and you see obvious Warwick David puppet stunt doubles in a couple of places, I, I don't care. I, I still like this. I have decided I'm going to myth bust this part of the film. Next time I go to Colorado, <laughs> I'm taking my Norman kite shield that I've used in heavy fighting, and I'm going to find me a hill. You know, you know, I'll film that and put it on the YouTube Geek at Arms Fails channel. Oh, I never said it was going to succeed. I just you want to see how badly it's going to fail. I'll also be wearing my heavy armor for protection while going down the hill. Yeah, that's that's a good move. But a uh, couple of other things about that scene where they've been captured. My wife pointed this out as we were watching it. They get captured by the Nakmar forces, who obviously have been scouting for them and track them. Think to grab Finn Rizel. The the talking huh. Australian marmot or whatever she is at this point. And it's like, oh, we'll grab the Nelwyn. We'll grab the baby. Oh, look, a talking a talking rat. I'll grab that, too. What the heck? Got a bag right here ready to go. Well, presumably they they knew that she was present because why else would Willow and Mad Mardigan be at that particular island? And Morta knows where she exiled Finn Rizel, too, and she knows what form she was in. So she may have told her soldiers, hey, if you see this rat, grab it. Which, once again... Excellent intel from the evil overlord. So, you know, something else from the list. Well done, Bav Morda. I want to see the scene where General Kale comes in with bags of muskrats. Like, okay, we grabbed all the muskrats. <laughs> Is any of them the one? I've threatened them all with a brick, and they just blink at me. I like that job where we were grabbing pregnant ladies much better. <laughs> <laughs> So they're on top of the mountain. Willow tries to change Finn Rizel into a human, turns her into a crow. And later on, Mad Morgan falls in love with Sorsha because of fairy, fairy dust. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Funny scene. And I marked the time down at one hour and 13 minutes into the film. And finally, they give the, quote, greatest swordsman who ever lived, unquote, a sword. <laughs> and then uh, the first thing he does is he throws it down to get on the shield to go down the hill. Uh, I, yeah. I think, no, 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 no. That is because he is the greatest swordsman. He knows you do not want to get in this uncontrolled environment with a naked blade. That's that's good thinking, Matt Martigan. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's smart. And it's a good thing, too, because we all see as he was going down, he went from just rolling down the hill to turning into Mad Martigan, the jolly snowman, before he hits the bottom. I think at this point, do we want to talk a little bit about Sorsha? In one moment, the last thing I want to say on that scene was, as I was watching it, as Mad Margaret kicks them off to go down the hill, you see a couple of Nokmar soldiers running after them. And the second before we cut away from that shot to them going down the mountain, <laughs> I had to stop it and rewind it like five times. <laughs> you see one Nokmar soldier running trip and totally bites it 100 percent face plant boom you even see his head bounce as he hits the ground i, I felt so bad for him he just he just bit it and i'm like i'm sorry it's late i don't care i have to watch that at least six more times i have noticed that in early in life but i forgot about that this time around 
But uh, yeah, let's let's talk about Sorsha. Sorsha. I mean, but what's to talk about? I mean, they really did not care to develop this character. When I found out that there was a novelization, she seemed to me like someone who there was probably a lot more under the surface that wasn't being said that once again we're supposed to just take for granted about her. Well, there were oh, a yeah. number of deleted scenes that explored her longing for her father and her not knowing what happened to him. But even with those scenes in there, she still does not make sense. <laughs> if we put those scenes in there, then her attraction to Mad Mardigan is nothing but daddy issues when literally she's surrounded by men. I mean, mm-hmm. surely, if, you, if you're longing for something, there's one surely in your entire nation that is good enough for you. Keep in mind, though, uh, she's the daughter of the demon empress Bav Morda, and she's right. also second. Yeah, she's also that. she's also second in command of the armies under General Freaking Kale, and you know, so say, she. Yeah, you're interested in a woman. Look at her mom. Sorsha, Bev, uh, no, I'm not touching that. It's like, yeah, nope, I'm out. Well, plus, she's also going to look at these guys. They're not men in that sense. They're they're her soldiers. Minions. They're minions, exactly. She no. has no man options because she cannot command a man to kiss her. Okay. Yeah. That's where yeah. we're at. Now, and you think about the way this woman was brought up. It's no wonder that she's broken. Seriously. I mean, apparently, according to the those deleted scenes, she's actually the daughter of the king of Tiraslin. Which, that brings up some questions. So her only parent is the aforementioned Death Nun. Uh, <laughs> I love that nickname. <laughs> and, you know, probably her only peer in that uh, particular nation that we saw was Kale, and, of course, he's psychotic. Is he? So, I mean, is he psychotic? I mean, okay, granted. He, he wears a weird skull to protect his face. If I had a beautiful bunch of man fur on my face too i would wear something to protect it okay. but other ba- than just being ruthless the, okay there's the scene where bav morta is talking about you know she's berating her daughter talking about finding to kill essentially an infant child the scene cuts to kale and he smiles of course, all okay, of his lines so, are three words long and shouted at the top of his lungs. And most of them revolve around the words, now you die. In some, Kill the beast! Yes. Hit the baby! I, now you, know, you if die! I, if I had an evil army, I'm just saying, this is the man I want to do the job. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I wrote but, quite a uh, bit about him. Like I said earlier, while we had all of these cookie-cutter sword and sorcery movies where the bad guy is always wearing total black with some type of pseudo-fantasy-esque, medieval-esque barbarian armor, Kale stands above and beyond all of them. And not just because he punched Indiana Jones? Not just because because he punched in Indiana Jones, but he's got the physical presence. The skull mask is wonderfully done. He carries a giant medievalist-looking sword, which borrows from a couple of different historical uh, swords in its look. And he, he wields it effortlessly. And yeah. he has the look of someone who isn't just a soldier, isn't just a general. When he gets on the battlefield, this man is a force of nature. But he's not a guy that you want to have a nice conversation with over a cup of coffee. No. <laughs> Unless it's about who we're going to kill. Right. Yes. And the answer being all of them. All of Everyone. them. Everyone. So you can see with in that particular environment why uh, Sorsha might not be the most well-balanced person. And so yeah, the very I, first person that shows her any kind of affection 
it I, gets under her skin. I get that that's what the script is leaning on, but I, I think that's the only reason why I'm I'm buying this this attraction is that the script said so. I I had a hard time buying this. Here's also why it It happens. It is not enough. The other reason it happens is because the possibility of it was referenced earlier in the movie. Yeah. I read the signs. I fear one day your daughter will be kissing on some handsome, handsome hulk of man who works for the enemy. And Bob Morta says, yeah, that, no, where did you come up with Hold on, that's oddly specific. What have you seen? (laughs) I... I kind of saw my crystal ball here. You see, she is she is totally making out with that guy. And there's a two-headed dragon. Oh, that is just ridiculous. Now, now I know your crystal ball is full of crap. There's no two-headed dragon there. And it's named from two film critics from an alternate dimension. Good Look, if you're not going to... The man flies a flying mechanical beast. Yeah. You know, if you Sears are not going to take this seriously, uh, you can just get out of my yeah, I'm out. <laughs> I did feel like, and once again, I'll come back to the armor influences. Sorsha's armor, I like that it does not follow the typical female fantasy armor tropes. It's still boob armor. It is, but it's subdued. It's not boom right there in in front of your face. Except for that, it's very functional. Uh, You see quite a bit of chainmail on her. And uh, the helmet, which she wears for most of it, the arrows, uh, the quiver of the back, you know, so she looks like an accomplished soldier, an accomplished archer, very Eastern looking in origin. Her sword, uh, unfortunately, that one completely fantasy made. That is, I think that is about the only sword in the whole film that is mostly fantasy. I mean, you can find a couple of elements in some shorter weapons that were supposed to be sword breakers. But you mm-hmm. don't see a whole lot of this serrated stuff. But hers is, to the film's credit, about the only sword that is fantasy generation. And most of these films, they have just complete impractical crap just oh, yeah. littering the screen. But not as much in this film. No. In this one, some of it looks like Lucas had an idea, a theme for each different army. For quite a bit of it, it looks like he probably had to raid the studio prop closet because it does. There are a few moments where, like I said, the the fantasy bad guy army does look like fantasy bad guy tropes that you see in every other bad sword and sorcery movie. Like I'm going to wear all black cloth except for around my eyes, and I'll have just a couple of pieces of armor, a helmet, a big metal plate strapped to my chest, and there I am a bad guy soldier. Happens here and there, but the armor that most of the soldiers are wearing is practical, has elements of real armor from history, and looks good. Like a Mad Mardigan's armor, the hero armor that he gets later in Tira's Lean. Very Indo-Persian looking. Comes with what is obviously a hand and a half or a longsword. And upon seeing that, that was the first time that I ever thought, man, a brass pommel on my sword would really look cool. <laughs> Yeah, I I absolutely loved that scene growing up when he sees this kingly armor or this hero's armor and he comes out looking fantastic in it. Mm-hmm. And I tried to look at it with a critical eye, but he just looks so good in it. Yeah. I, I don't even I couldn't even critically evaluate it. Yeah, I think when I was a kid, I, I laughed a little bit when he went into that armory and was looking at everything because I thought I was you know seeing him so jubilant. But now that I'm older and a lot more knowledge at my fingertips, I'm like, man, he's me. 
I, I'd be doing that exact same thing. <laughs> I would just walk in there, and it's Christmas time. Like, you, ooh, swords, ooh, crossbows, crossbows, ooh, halberds, halberds. <gasps> Armor and a matching sword. Everything gets put on pause while I put this on. And so if we're if we're going to do a little bit of historical-ish evaluation, just little tidbit for you kids, castle doors usually didn't open in. They would open typically open out because it's a lot harder to bash them in. Anyway, I'm done. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah. that, that's, that's not well, a nitpick on the film. I don't care for the film. Just, you know. Yeah. Tidbit for the kid. Well, that does lead us to Tira's Lean, which Willow and Party find that it's, you know, essentially cursed. Everyone who was left was locked in clear-colored stone, and it's infested by trolls. Because why not? Because why not? And not because like... Because ran and said so. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and you get the trolls, you get Mad Mardigan setting up. Of course, they were followed by the army. And when Sorsha does get away from them, because at one point he does take Sorsha hostage, I do want to give the character props. And I shared this with my wife. When she is trying to get away from Mad Mardigan, because she's like, all those things you said to me, what happened to it? Why did you change? She goes, well, I don't know. It just went away. She's like, it went away. You walk in darkness without me, and it went away? Ooh, right. bad, bad choice of words. And she gets away. Right. <laughs> he catches her. They have a meaningful look. He tries to pick her up to bring her while Willow is just beside himself like, dude, let her go. Come on. And throat punch. She throat punches him, which as a kid, I was like, ooh, as an adult, I find hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) And when he's down and they don't play off of it because she didn't make contact, but you can see clearly throat punch. He hits the ground. She boot stomps him in the crotch. At that point, the movie should have been over. It's done. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to be a hero anymore. (laughs) Exactly. At that point, just this roll credits, he's not getting up from that. From a throat punch and not a kick to the crotch, like say a stomp. And it's it's done. They're done. Like, oh, you still had your spurs on. Oh. (laughs) So he survives that. And well done on her for being highly effective in her choice of, of fighting. And uh, tears lean. Um, lots of things happen. And then, as we've talked about before, the as I call it, the dragon that is not a dragon, the Ebersisk appears. Which, it's a good thing that it does. Otherwise, that fight would have been really short. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Mad Mardigan felt the need. Like, he had this pregnant sigh of like, oh, now I got to deal with this. And my thought was, well, why? The dragon's actually working out for you right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, they've got a lot of things to keep their attention. Why would you take this off Nakmar's plate? But, you know, it doesn't matter because Eric's army is about to arrive. So yeah. that's but fine. I did love the part where he's there yelling, doing his sword flippy flippy thing. And the Nakmar army stops and like, whoa. And then they run away. And he's like, yeah. And he turns around, sees it. And he's like, what? Because there's a giant dragon behind him, and he runs out as well, which is what you do when there's a giant <laughs> dragon behind you. And they're out; they're all outside of the castle. And Mad Morgan's system in, in uh, motion. Yes, and he looks at them, and they look at him. And honestly, I kind of saw it as like a shared brotherhood of battle moment. They're like, "Yeah, <laughs> okay, I know we were supposed to be fighting, but but forget that. We got to deal with this problem now." He's like, "Are you okay?" I'm a, I, I know I was trying to kill you a second ago. Sorry, because now we got to deal with this. And it takes Kale to remind them, just like, kill him! <laughs> <laughs> Guys, we, we got a thing to do. Yeah, exactly. 
<laughs> and there's more fighty, fighty, stabby, stabby. I loved the idea of when Mad Mardigan does jump on the back of the beast to, as you say, deal with it. Stabs it in the back of the head with the sword, which should have been an insta-kill. But it wasn't. But it did provide a mechanical lever to keep the monster from opening its mouth. And See, so I just this is weird. I just assumed that its brain was actually protected in that skull nub in front of its eyes. I have absolutely mm -hmm. no idea why I thought that, but that's where I was going. <laughs> well, we don't have pseudo monster anatomy for a two headed dragon beast that used to be a troll. So headcanon accepted for that as well. I was a troll, then I was a brain, then I was an Eversisk. I, I don't even know who I am anymore. And who is this guy next to me? <laughs> <laughs> what is this itchy thing on my back? And what are all these little snacks doing running around? Like, oh, I know just what to do with those. Mm -hmm. As an aside, they had a uh, visual guide to monsters of LucasArts, and uh, they had diary entries for Eversisk. And it was hilarious. <laughs> oh, nice. I, I don't remember much of what it said, but at one point, like at one point in its day, like eat Akplat babies, then it was regurgitate Akplat babies, then at a certain appointment type, re-eat Akplat babies. Like, <laughs> I have no idea why I shared that. I am sorry. <laughs> so we were finishing up with Tearsleen. Tearsleen. And once more, uh, short and sweet sentences from Kale. I have the baby. Yeah. And it's one of those things, My, I think one of my kids picked up on this, that, well, Kale really just ran the marathon all the way back to Nakmar. I mean, did not sleep, did not eat, did did not stop to pee. I mean, there he goes from Tears Lean, shows up at Nakmar. Hey, I'm here. And, you know, of course, 20 minutes later, the rest of the army shows up. <laughs> With wagons and tents and more that they picked up on the way. See, how did... Eric show up with an army because it went from being he had an army the army got wiped out it's just him and a couple of dudes in a basement to I've got a large force being guided by a couple of brownies because how else would we because how else would we have found the hidden city of Tirislene no you're the reason he was defeated was because his reinforcements were late yeah, see, you're trying to make sense of this, and that's where you went wrong. <laughs> Absolutely right. What was I thinking? Yeah. This is, we're watching Willow right now. If you want to talk about films that make sense, we'll talk later. It <laughs> it makes sense in the narrative. I don't think we have any of those coming up. <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> so, they show up, then they play Gopher, then they're in the city, and that's that's when the awesome happens. And, you know, it's watching that battle scene that I first decided that what I really wanted out of life was to dump a bunch of boiling oil onto a bunch of people. I mean, is this too much to ask? No, no. See, it's how you know you're alive. Yeah. I am curious about why all of the defenses in the Nokmar Castle were apparently pointed at the Bailey. Yeah, there's one point where Mad Mardigan sets off some type of spear-launching machine, but it's inside. The insurgencies are prominent inside uh, Nakmar, and uh, the people that Bath Morda has had to wage war against is mostly her own people and subordinate uh, generals in her own army. Yeah. I'm making this up. I have no idea. <laughs> Once again, we're well, not looking to make sense. We're talking about making sense. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> my, uh, my queen, I have an idea. Why don't we point all these defenses pointing out of the castle? 
you dare to challenge me? But it's that same logic that when Finn Rizel, who has been properly morphed, M-O-R-F-E-D, uh, patent pending, into a human again, and her and Willow are at the gates, and Kale laughs and says, kill them. He sends out a party of six cavalry to do it. Has he forgotten that archers exist? <laughs> I mean, I think there's literally like a couple of them, like two guys down from him. That is exactly what my wife said. Like, what? <laughs> wouldn't arrows just do the job? I mean, one of them's an old lady, the other one's a Nelwyn. They could have made a game of this. <laughs> but no, no, no. Send out the cat. Sir, I'm right here. Sir, I'm just here existing with my arrows. No, I'm sending out cavalry. But we have arrows. You're absolutely right. I should send out six of them. <laughs> <laughs> So during the battle, the big generals meet. The bad guy in black, the good general in gold, and they clash. And it's, you know... Uh, and, and his glorious, glorious red beard. His glorious red beard <laughs> and an Indian sword. And of course it has to go badly, because we all know it's Mad Mardigan who's supposed to be fighting Kale. Right, because if you kill Kale, then you win this war for Eric. Yeah. Because all it really takes is the big bad guy being dead, and then the entire nation crumbles. I did like that while the boys, for the most part, were downstairs fighting, it was the ladies who were going upstairs to take care of business. Oh, yeah, that was great. I mean, that was just everything that you need out of a wizard duel. And then once they realize they're not doing damage with magic, they're scratching each other's faces punching each other and oh, then yes. throttling the other person. Do you know what? That I'm sorry, that was wonderful. But at some point you run out of mana. Yeah. <laughs> this is why Gandalf we have the picture. This is why Gandalf carries an AK forty seven. What what's funny, if you want to go to sword dueling for this, because mm -hmm. I mean, why not? It is it is a common thing in the fencing manuals. They say, well don't get too close to somebody because at this point, it just descends to wrestling and brawling yeah. anyway. And historical accounts say that there are so many times that swords get discarded and it just goes to punching each other on the ground. It comes back to D&D. &D. This is why you multi-class. <laughs> right. <laughs> and Kale didn't multi-class. He put all of his into Warlord Barbarian. You see what happened to him? Uh, he, he wounds up on the ground in the rain and all of his blood outside of it. Which I do want to give props to Mad Mardigan in this fight. He goes up against Kale. It's a bit back and forth. His sword gets broken, and then he cuts off part of Kale's mask in a cool move that looks neat. Kale plays possum for a second and sees Mad Mardigan going up the stairs, tries to attack him on the stairs. They fight. Mad Mardigan stabs him. Kale responds by punching Mad Mardigan. Mad Mardigan stabs him a second time. Kale responds by punching him some more. At this point, Mad Mardigan is like, I'm going about this wrong. <laughs> and so he stabs Kale a third time, which is exactly what you do. If you stab someone and they still move, stab them again. If they keep moving, stab them a third time. If they're still moving and punching you in the face, throw them off a bridge. Uh, actually, that was covered in uh, Gigante's second treatise. That is that you gain their blade, you disengage, gain their blade, you stab them, then you throw them off a bridge, and then you recover out of measure. Yes. And in a deleted scene, we see Mad Mardigan get a chariot, run over Kale's body a few times just for good measure. Yeah, that's... <laughs> just to make sure the job is done. And then be skeptical. 
Well, it goes back. You never trust the enemy. You know, we're talking about the mage fight upstairs. And the reason that there was a knockdown drag out fight was because... Finn Rizel, to, to use that analogy, uses up all her mana in tossing Babmorda around the room like a rag doll. Babmorda's on the ground, looks like she's done for. She gets too close to the body. Yeah, never poke your enemy with a stick. They can play possum. Exactly. At this point, it's very simple what she should have done. She should have double tapped. Uh, yeah, more fire damage. Yeah, well, we've already seen the, the wand shoot lightning bolts. Should yeah, have, this, this should have been the follow-up. Yeah, should have been the follow-up, and we're done. Yeah. Well, I mean, while we're here at the final scene, I mean, we could go on about the parts of this that make sense and don't make sense. But the thing that I do, as much as that things aren't entirely coherent, what happens right at the very end when it seems like the ritual is complete and Babmort is taken up, it's because Willow decides instead of relying on magic, he relies on magic tricks. Anytime he's relying on magic that isn't his own, uh, like he takes the acorn and he throws it. I mean, none of those acorns ever helped him. It was real magic. It was, you know, good magic from the High Aldwin, but it was never his own. And so it never works for him. The magic that really worked for him is just being clever. Mm-hmm. He takes a magic trick that does something that is impossible. Like, this can't happen. Like, there is a sorceress who knows better. This sort of thing doesn't exist. And it's only when he, he has that confusion of breaking her paradigm and he either, this ritual somehow completes and she's the one who gets exiled. I mean, that is what happens, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, the, that that's how I interpreted it. Like in the novelization, it was saying that he used the words that completed the ritual. It never explained how he would know that. Oh, uh, yeah, that doesn't make sense at all. Nope. <laughs> no. But, but her spilling um, the blood on the altar is, I thought, what did it. That and combined that with her holding the wand and... I didn't figure the wand had anything to do with it because she wasn't counting on the wand being there. She wasn't, but I kind of saw the wand as providing a power source, fueling the ritual <laughs> when it sense. wasn't supposed to go off. Dude, no, it was all solar. There was those Obama-era funds that came through, and she had... No, there was no power source except for, for solar energy. Why the do you queen, think that, that the queen's de- the defeated by green energy. <laughs> that feels so good saying it, doesn't it? <laughs> no, not really. Oh, dang it. <laughs> but I do believe that the reason now why... I'm to write that script. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to... To Willow, I believe that him using his trick and uh, had such an effect. The reason it was so effective was because everyone in this entire movie has underestimated him. Not even underestimated him. To underestimate someone, you have to give them a little bit of credit, a little bit of estimation. No one in this movie hardly gives him any. Yeah, they just flat dismiss him. Exactly. Doesn't matter if it's big people, people his own size. Even the brownies are calling him Peck. He is constantly undervalued throughout the movie. And so when it comes to the big moment and he's up against the ultimate evil and she's telling him what he's going to do, you're going to put the baby on the altar and that's final. That's what you're going to do. You're not even going to talk back. And he does. She, she's so dismissive of him, sneering. It's like, little boy, don't, don't test my patience. I've had a bad day. Did you see what I just dealt with? And when he does it, she's so focused on herself that in her eyes, he has done the impossible. He has done exactly what he said he was going to do. Send Alora to a dimension where evil cannot touch her. 
her mind, her dynamic, her world is utterly, completely blown. Yeah, it's kind of weird that for such an evil person, she doesn't really understand the concept of lying. <laughs> well, she probably would never expect it from someone so minuscule in her eyes. Well, yeah, she, well, probably she completely didn't. dismissed the idea that Sorsha would betray her. No, people can't lie to me. And also, she's probably not accustomed to somebody trying to use classic misdirection. Yeah. I mean, this is just illusionism. Honestly. I, mean, I see the baby. It's right there. Now the baby's not there. That's not how that works. She operates in the world of real magic. So I right. mean, what use does she have for sleight of hand? Right. Well, okay. So we killed General Kale. We, we banish Bavmorda. So the world is put right again. And the only thing left to do is to give the baby to a psychotic madwoman. I think that sounds like a great plan. She is a and woman, so she must be better at it than anybody else in the script. It's okay. I mean, She's fallen in what? love with a roguish, reckless swordsman with abandonment issues. I mean, there's... Perfect. This, Don't this be great, parents. Is, this is going to work. This is so going to work. Okay. The film was a product of its time. That's going to be what it is. So, yeah, no, even in 1988, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> I did like that it shows him, instead of riding off into the sunset on a white horse, it has him leaving slowly on a white pony. Did you notice that the horse when he left was a lot bigger than the one when he arrived? I did not. I, I was, did not. I was too busy noticing all of the people standing there waving. I was expecting them to break out in song like the end of the court jester with Danny Kaye. <laughs> That's what that scene reminded me of. He gets home. Everyone's like, Willow, Willow's back. And you get to to believable moments. He sees his wife. Yay. And Kaya sees him. And it doesn't matter that they're two very small people. Running is awkward for them. You feel for them in this moment. You really yeah. believe it's two people who love each other who have been separated for far too long and are just giddy that they're together again. And, of course, a poop joke. Of course. <laughs> I did like that the High Alwyn was there to greet him, and Willow shows him the apple trick. And I didn't get to him earlier, but I have to say, I'm sorry. I think one of my favorite things about this entire movie was the High Alwyn. Yeah, uh, he was a classic short person actor. Like, he's done a lot. I have fell in love with that entire character. I mean, when it was done with him, I looked at my wife and said, shut the movie down. It's over with. Best part's done. Go in the direction the bird is going. He's going back to the village. Forget the bird. Follow the river. <laughs> the movie's not over till we get a poop joke on Burgle Cut. Of but... course. Here's a question for you, Mike, because now the movie yeah. is over with. But as much of a Willow fanboy as you were, did you ever know that there were books that came out a decade later as sequels to the movie? I'm not going to say, no, I did not. I'm going to say, no, there are not. <laughs> um, I I was really excited when they were first released. I picked it up in Walden Books. I read the first ten pages and that, I put that, it down that, and I said I'm good. That dates it right there. <laughs> that dates it's the period of time we're talking about. You mentioned Walden Books. Absolutely. Um, Brian, um, were you aware of these? I was aware that they existed. I didn't even get so far as to pick one up. I was always scouring the shelves for Buttercup's baby. Right. I I read all three. Okay, good for you. Yeah, that's, You can that, enjoy that, things that, I'm that, not into. But, um, no, seriously. Um, enjoying is a strong word. As in the sense it's completely incorrect. It's like... But James I, is the kind of person that when he starts something... Yeah, that's true. 
let me put it this way. I started and I finished a 5K in the mud, and the books were harder than that. <laughs> I hesitate to to use the word grim dark, but there it is. <laughs> you just powered through and you used it, and we're proud of you. Well, it's also an an appropriate label. Now, does that describe the narrative or the prose? Ooh. Um, all of the above. The book itself, the first one was called Shadow Moon. First in the Chronicles of the Shadow War. And if that lengthy title doesn't tell you everything you need to know, like, well, that has nothing to do about the movie Willow. Exactly. Um, and then there was something about a demon, and then I didn't care. So we're done. We're, I, we're, it's, we're just closed that I'm, down. I'm just going to put this for our listeners. Read it if you want to. I'm not your boss. I'm not in charge of you. You can do what you want. It's a but shame after because you've done so. You might actually enjoy season five of Babylon Five. <laughs> <laughs> oh oh man, yeah, we're done. <laughs> Get out, everybody. Well, what I was going to say is, the books were written by Chris Claremont, famous for his fantastic arcs in the X-Men comic books. I mean, he's written some of the best storylines. And this book, it just, it barely pays lip service to the movie it's based on. It's supposed to be a sequel to, I don't know, I felt like I had to mention them because they do exist out there, for better or for worse, mostly worse. And I tend to not think of them at all. In fact, I had completely forgotten about them until we made the decision to watch Willow. And uh, I forget about them. I don't think of them because, in my mind, they tarnish it. Yeah. Well, let's just ask the question. Did you enjoy the movie? Was it a good movie? Um, was it a good movie? That's speculative. I thought it was a good movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I enjoyed it then. I enjoyed it last night. Is the acting Oscar level? No. Are the effects dated for most of them? Absolutely. Are there plot holes that a daikini could walk through? Yes, there are. But I love the spirit of this movie. We talk about it's very melodramatic, and it is, but they don't ham it up like you would see a melodrama on a stage. To me, most of the actors, even though the acting is in part so-so, they sell it. They were very earnest in their portrayal of these characters, most of them at least. Um, I found it to be very unpretentious. It's an honest movie. It doesn't try to be anything else than what it is. Yeah. A sword and sorcery movie of simple plot and direction. How many movies today can say that? Not just fantasy movies, but most movies. And I would love to see a return of this kind of movie in Hollywood. They don't need to be super green screen, effect heavy, thrill rides, void of any heart, or pseudo dark grim tale fantasy extravaganzas that are aspiring to be the next Lord of the Rings. You can tell a simple story with simple effects and come out of it with a great tale. And that's my two cents. I still love it. I'll continue watching it over the years. I know it's not the greatest example of film craft, but if I had shots from Willow on my reel, I'd still be proud of them. I I thoroughly enjoyed the rewatch. Uh, I felt like all of my emotional points went along with James Horner's soundtrack. I think that the plot is 
kind of a mess. I mean, I don't think it's a great film. There's a lot of nostalgia tied up in it, but I think that this is a thing that I'll watch again with my kids and I'll watch with some of my friends for like, hey, let's have a light film that's, as you said, unpretentious fun. Uh, So not a good film, but I thoroughly enjoyed watching it. Well, I think that does it for our first fantasy film of the film club. If there was nothing else to add, then that will take us to Mike and the zombie apocalypse plan of the week. Mike, how are we going to stave off the undead daikinis this time? All right. Two words. Weaponized tetanus. Uh, Once the zombies have lockjaw, there's no way for them to bite you. So... (laughs) (laughs) It's a cleanup from there. And you know what? We can have the zombies do the cleanup. No longer able to bite and spread the infection, we can begin mobilizing them as the potential manpower resource they are. Ew. No. (laughs) Not not hiring. Not hiring. Just like, look, I mean, the thing is, once you start hiring safe zombies, cleanup on aisle seven is in front of and behind the zombie. So just no. Excellent point. Well, that will wrap it up for us at Geek at Arms. We want to thank everyone for listening in. Make sure you check us out online at Facebook.com slash Geek at Arms, on Twitter at ArmsGeek, and our website, geekatarms.com. If you listen to us on iTunes or on the Google Play Store, subscribe and leave us a review. Let us know how you think we're doing. And as always, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome. Can I pause for just one second? Of course. I'm sorry, you needed me for a second? Kaja, I've got to pause real quick. Oh, did you just get Betrayal Legacy? Yes. Holy crap. Okay, we're going to be back <laughs> This to is a Geek at Arms exclusive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Can I touch it? I did not. Here, I'm going to give this back to you. I'm going to. We're still recording. Dang He's it, Kaja. We're not going like to be able to get him to focus for the rest of the podcast. Sorry, I can't think. I can't think. I can't. There's Betrayal Legacy in my house. There's Betrayal Legacy in my house. There's Betrayal Legacy in my house. Oh. <laughs>